passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, this morning we are in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 7, looking at verses 2 through 17. And as we're, uh, as, as we're going to see as we work our way through this passage, uh, 1 Samuel 7 is all about repentance. It's all about the repentance of God's people um, as they at long last return to the Lord. They've been um, under the, the oppression of the Philistines for at least 20 years uh, at this point, and, and at long last they, they run back to the Lord. Now this word repentance can carry a lot of baggage with it. Uh, sometimes people look at it as though it is a, a dirty word, um, and, and a lot of people don't like to talk about repentance. It can be hard for us to wrestle with. It, it leads to conviction, and so some people, uh, some, some churches even, uh, will just kind of cut it out of, of the, their, their preaching because they, they don't want to talk about the importance of repentance. It seems uncomely for uh, our ears today. And yet, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that the, the message of repentance is, is not one of, of fire and brimstone. It's actually a, a balm for the downtrodden souls of God's people after decades of suffering, decades of oppression at the hands of their enemies. And that's the lens I hope that we look at uh, this sermon this morning, but not just this sermon, really all of, of uh, our discussion or our thoughts on repentance, this idea that, that it's not just a, a hard, callous God asking so much of us, but instead it's, it comes from a good, gracious, loving God. This topic of repentance is really one that, that focuses on the importance of renewal, returning to a right relationship with God. And we'll see from this passage that renewal is impossible without repentance. The two are inseparable as we look at this text this morning. That's the reason uh, why we see that they are connected. This theme is, is found in 1 Samuel over and over and over again. That is the theme of God's glory. God is deeply concerned for His glory. And God delights when people will respond to Him with worship. And so he will, he will gladly bestow renewal upon people who are far from him. He's committed to the nations seeing and declaring his glory. One author puts it this way. I love the way that uh, this, this author describes it. He says, a God who seeks worship naturally grants renewal or revival. When we recognize that God sends renewal so that his name may be praised, we understand that no need will ever surpass our need for God himself. That if we don't have God, then we don't have renewal. Later on, that same author argues that we can't hope to have God if we aren't also living a life that honors him, a life of repentance, a life that gives glory to God with every fiber of our being. Repentance and renewal are inseparable. 
And what's more, as we will see in this passage, as, as we already just described, God delights to give renewal to his people. So let's go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 7. That's where we'll be this morning. This is a chapter that breaks into three distinct parts, and, and they all focus on renewal and repentance. That's going to be our focus this morning. First, we're going to look at the, the ceremony at Mizpah. That's what we see in verses 2 through 6. There's a ceremony that takes place at Mizpah. Let's go ahead and look at the context starting in verse 2. From that day, or excuse me, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Remember what we saw last week as we were looking at chapter 5 and chapter 6. Those two chapters are about God declaring his glory to the Philistines. He's proving his glory to the Philistines. The Philistines had captured the ark, and yet God delivers the ark back to Israel all by himself. He doesn't need Israel's help. He's going to take care of this on his own. Thank you very much. And the ark returns to the people of Israel, and yet we see soon in, in chapter 6 that Israel's no better than the Philistines. The Philistines had to learn that God is glorious, and then we see Israel has to learn the exact same lesson. A number of men from Beit Shemesh, this place where the ark arrived, they decide to take the ark and set it up as a tourist attraction and say, hey everyone, come and look at the ark, look at how amazing this is, look how God has blessed us. They didn't treat God as glorious, and so God proves his glory to the people of Israel by striking down the men of Beit Shemesh. And this leaves the remaining people of Beit Shemesh absolutely terrified, and when we finished last week, they were so terrified that they, they say, hey, we don't want the ark among us, and so they go and call out these people from Kiriath-Jerim and say, hey, come grab the ark from us because we don't want anything to do with the holiness of the glory of this God. And so the ark is brought to Kiriath-Jerim, and that's where the ark remains until the time of King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, King David brings the ark to Jerusalem, and for decades it remains here in Kiriath-Jerim. Now, just because God rescued the ark from the Philistines doesn't mean that the occupation of Israel at the hand of the Philistines has come to an end. Verse 2 tells us here in chapter 7 that about two decades have passed from the end of chapter 6 to our story this morning in chapter 7. For two long decades, Israel has suffered under Philistine rule, but that doesn't mean that God isn't at work. For those two decades, we see that God is at work. In fact, that's what 1 Samuel has already told us. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, 1 Samuel chapter 4, right there bridging the gap between these two chapters, we have a description of Samuel's ministry. It says this, And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and I just want to take a note and say Dan was the, the, the most northern point in Israel, Beersheba was the most southern point. So what the text is saying is everyone... From the, from the most northern part to the most southern part, all of the people of Israel are being exposed to the preaching of Samuel. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And so the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. 
and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So for 20 years, Samuel is faithfully proclaiming the word of God. He's serving as a prophet. The word of God is at long last returned to the people of Israel. You might say, well, what exactly is he saying? What is his message? Multiple times in 1 Samuel so far, I've said the most important book for us to understand leading into this is Deuteronomy. And that is certainly true this morning as well. Deuteronomy tells us the message that, that Samuel is proclaiming for 20 years to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 30 says this. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, so notice this focus on the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, And from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Here's the message that Samuel is proclaiming. Right before this, right before chapter 30 in the book of Deuteronomy, there's this message of if you're not faithfully following the Lord, he will send curses. And one of those curses is the idea that your enemies will rule over you. And that's exactly what happens to the people of Israel because they are not obedient. They do not follow the Lord. But that's not the end of the story because in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says, when all these things come upon you, the curses of not following God come upon you, if you will return to the Lord, he will gladly welcome you back. The affliction that the people of Israel experience is foretold in the book of Deuteronomy, but it's not just the affliction that we see there, it's also the promise of renewal in the book of Deuteronomy. And so for 20 years, the message of Samuel to the people of Israel is return to the Lord, return to the Lord, come back to God, and he will hear us, and he will heal us. It's not too late to come back to God. It's never too late with this God because he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Return to the Lord, and he will give us renewal. And for 20 years, This is the message of Samuel to a broken people. It's sobering to realize that it takes 20 years for this to sink in. For 20 years, Samuel is proclaiming this message. Why does it take 20 years? We aren't given the exact answer, but I suspect at least two answers or two reasons based off of what I see Not just in this text, but really from people today. The first one is this. It took 20 years for this message to sink into the hearts of the people of God because they refused to believe that they were in the wrong. Hard hearts are just like that. They're hard. And rather than the rain of God's word being soaked into soil that is soft, ready to hear and to respond to the message of repentance, the message of returning to God, instead it falls on hearts that are so hard that it is like rain falling on rock, shedding the water of life. 
And it takes 20 years of suffering, 20 years of oppression, of hardship, for those hearts to be softened to the point where they are willing to hear and heed the message of Deuteronomy 30 to return. But I think there's another reason. I, I, I don't think that's that describes everyone in Israel in that day. There are some, some people who have hard hearts, are refusing to, to admit that they are in the wrong. At the same time, there are some people who are refusing to believe the good news. The good news that God actually is going to welcome them back into his family. If the first category is filled with people who have hearts that are so hard because they don't believe they are in the wrong, the second category is people who have hard hearts because they refuse to believe that God is merciful. And so they will bear the punishment of what they have done wrong. Because their hearts are so hardened against the idea of God's mercy. Isn't that the same today? That we either have one of these two natural inclinations. There, there are plenty of people who ignore the call to return to the Lord because our hearts are so hard that we refuse to believe that we are in the wrong. And yet, there are also some of us who, who are prone to ignore the call to return to the Lord because we can't believe that God would actually forgive someone like me. And once I do my penance, once I show that I am sorry enough, maybe then God will welcome me back. And for 20 years, Samuel is crying out, return to the Lord, return to this God. And for 20 years, there is little to no response. Paradoxically, I don't want us to miss the grace of these 20 years of suffering. For 20 years, the sovereign God allows his people to live in brokenness, to live in pain, to live in hardship, not because he is vindictive, but because he was at work softening their hearts so they could hear the message, return to me, return to me. It is a mysterious gift of grace that sometimes God allows us to suffer, not out of judgment, not because he is he's seeking vengeance on us, but instead to help us see the gift of our greatest need. To return to the Lord. To return to the God who loves us. And for 20 years, Samuel is proclaiming this message, and at long last, the people of Israel are finally ready to listen. Verse 3, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Here we catch a, a part of the message of, of Samuel's call to, to renewal. Samuel's words here are saturated with the language of Deuteronomy. Of Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's saying, hey, God has already told us in his word what we should do if we are going to return to him. 
So consider the three commands that we see here in verse 3. The first one is this, put away the foreign gods. He says, if Israel is serious about returning to God after 20 plus years of suffering, then we have to start at the beginning. We have to start with the first commandment. By getting rid of other gods, by getting rid of the idols in our lives. Casting out, casting down these other gods that vie for our affection in our lives, that we've set up in the place of God on the throne of our lives. And for Israel, he gets specific. He says that means you have to get rid of the Ashtaroth. This was a fertility goddess, the goddess of pleasure. And he says later, in, in, at the end of this uh, verse, uh, that you have to get rid of the Baals as well, the gods who were said to rule over crops and the fertility of the ground. I don't think it's insignificant that the exact same gods are, are what we struggle with today as well. They don't go by Ashtaroth, they don't go by Baal, they instead go by other things, but the heart is the same. Who among us isn't tempted to run after pleasure when life is hard? Who among us... Is, may not worship the Baals, but, but runs to what the Baals may promise us, to go our own way, to seek after comfort and security, whether it's storing up more and more money or, or stuff or any number of things that promises us security and safety and provision, but it isn't the Lord alone. And Samuel says to the people of Israel, he says to us as well, if you're going to return to the Lord, it starts by casting down the false gods, all of the places in your life that you run to for hope and pleasure and safety and security and get rid of them and find those things in the living God alone. Put away the other gods. Notice the second command. In verse 3, direct your heart to the Lord. It's not enough to remove the false gods from your life because something is going to fill that vacuum. You will worship something. And if it's not a false god, it'll be another false god unless it is the Lord himself. The phrase direct your heart literally means to stand firm in Hebrew. So plant your feet. It's no good to get rid of the idols in your life if you don't also have an unshakable resolve to instead orient your life around God, around his commandments, around the life that he wants you to live. You plant your feet in the way of God, in the way of God's commandments and say, I will not let it go of God. I will not let go of his commandments. Third thing, third command in verse 3 closely related. Serve him only. God will not share his throne. Period. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in the New Testament. He says you cannot serve both God and money. But it's not just money that God won't share the throne with. God refuses to share the throne with any other idol that we might run to, that we might pursue to find happiness and safety in our lives. And he says, if you would return to the Lord, then you have to serve him and him alone. Now, if you've been reading for Samuel with us to this point, 
verse 4 is actually quite shocking. Because in verse 4, the people actually listen. This has not happened in 1 Samuel to this point. Israel, they don't do this. So, so this, is, this is monumental. At long last, the people of Israel, they've, they've always done the opposite of what God says, and now they're finally doing what God has said. After 20 long years of Samuel's preaching, saying, return to God, return to God, return to God, they finally pay off. And they return. Verse 5. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Just like in Joshua chapter 24, all of the people there in Joshua 24, they gather together for something called a covenant renewal ceremony. It's like this time where they plant a flag in the ground and say, from this moment on, we will follow the Lord. There's actually a lot of parallel language here in, in 1 Samuel 7 and Joshua chapter 24. And Samuel is calling the people of Israel to do the exact same thing when they get to Mizpah. Mizpah, located about seven and a half miles north of Jerusalem, the center of Israel. And something astonishing happens. That As I, I was thinking about this this past week, it, it almost brought tears to my eyes because this moment is so significant. The reality is the people of Israel, they haven't been ignoring God for 20 years. It's been centuries. You look at the beginning of Judges, Judges chapter 2, and we see that once Joshua and his generation pass away, the people of Israel reject God. They go their own way. They run to idols. And right now, at long last, after abandoning the Lord for centuries, the people of God are coming back from, from Dan in the far north all the way to Beersheba in the far north. They're coming together. They're responding to the message of repentance and renewal. And they show up at Mizpah and they show up to worship God. And I think it's, it's significant to notice here how Israel responds in this passage because it shows us what genuine repentance actually looks like. They're not going through the motions here. They're not just putting on appearances. This is actual legitimate change that we see from the people of God. I don't think we can overstate how important this moment is in the history of First and Second Samuel and really the history of God's people as a whole. This is actual repentance. And it's so important that I, I just, as I was looking at this passage, I think there are five observations about what repentance actually is that are worth considering for us this morning. First one, notice this. Repentance is more than just regret or guilt. It's more than just regret or guilt. I know people, I've met with people who will come into my office and, and they're just overcome with guilt. They have a guilty conscience. And as I'm talking with them about what exactly the source of that is, I soon realize, for some of them, they don't actually care about what they did wrong. They just want to feel good about themselves again. And what we see here 
from 1 Samuel chapter 7 is while there is a sense of guilt, while there is a sense of regret that is a part of repentance, it is certainly more than that. There is this recognition that I have offended a holy God and that my actions are offensive to Him. And it's not just saying, hey, once I get rid of this guilt, this this feeling of, of being unclean, then I'll just go back to the life that I was living. There's something more than that that we see from the people of Israel right here. There is regret. There is guilt here. But it's not their chief concern. This idea of a clear conscience is not the the number one priority for the people of Israel when they return to the Lord. Repentance is more than just regret or guilt. Second thing, repentance is an inward attitude that is expressed in outward action. False repentance is, is lacking one of these two things. False repentance is, is, for some people, it's just superficial actions without any recognition that, that I have, I've done something wrong in my own heart. For others, there is this heart recognition. I've done something wrong, and yet, they, for a number of reasons, oftentimes because they're just too cowardly, they refuse to act on the conviction of the Spirit in external ways. Repentance is both. It's an inward heart action or attitude, a heart conviction that expresses itself in outward actions. Third, repentance involves confession of sin. Notice the only recorded words of Israel in this passage are about their sin. A confession of their sin. Repentance is not just dealing with a guilty conscience. It is recognizing that I have sinned, that I have offended a holy God with my actions. Fourth, repentance also involves forsaking sin. Forsaking sin in our lives. It's not enough for us to just admit that we are wrong. Repentance also involves forsaking, turning away from sin. Jesus refers to this as the crucifixion of our flesh. Repentance is not just an attempt to to clean up our consciences so we feel better about ourselves and then go back to what we are used to doing. It is a recognition that my life was offensive to God and so I put away the sin, the idols of my life and instead decide to serve the Lord alone. And that's the fifth observation from this passage. Repentance involves obedience. It involves obedience to King Jesus. The words of Deuteronomy chapter 30 are supremely covenantal. They're focused on God's relationship with humanity. And they point us ultimately to Jesus. The establishment of a new covenant with the people of God. And in the exact same way, we, as the, the people of God in the new covenant, must acknowledge that we also have to be obedient to King Jesus and to his commands. This is made very clear in Samuel's preaching. We can't claim repentance if we haven't forsaken our sin and returned to the Lord in the path of obedience. You see the promise of repentance in verse 3? Verse 3, we see that this promise 
is that God will deliver the people of Israel. And that's, that's not just a, a promise for Israel. I think it's also a promise for us as well, that if we return to the Lord with, with genuine repentance, we'll see that the Lord longs for the repentance of his people. In fact, that's the, the first episode here of this chapter. That's kind of the main point. The Lord longs for the repentance of his people. God loves it when his people repent, when they return to him. He delights to give renewal to his people. He delights to live in relationship with his people. Contrary to what people believe today, this idea of repentance is not a hard harsh message from a cold and calculated God. It's coming from a loving God who longs to be with his people. And confession is hard. Repentance is hard. Forsaking sin is hard. Dying to self is hard. Walking in the path of obedience is hard. And yet, at the end of the road, we see there is a God who delights in the repentance of his people. What about us? Will we follow the example of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 7, or will we harden our hearts, refuse to forsake our sin, justify our actions, explain them away, say the past is in the past? God delights in the repentance of his people. How does God respond? That's what we see in the next episode here of of chapter 7, starting in verse 7. This is the battle at Mizpah. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. This verse tells us a whole lot about the significance of the ceremony at Mizpah. For one thing, it lasted long enough for the Philistines to hear about it, to gather an army and begin to march toward Mizpah. And the Philistines assumed, and I, I guess they probably assumed correctly, they assumed that this gathering of Israel would lead to a revolt against their lordship, against their rule. And so they thought, hey, it's better for us to crush this thing before it gets out of hand. And so they start to march toward Mizpah. Israel hears that that the Philistines are marching toward Mizpah, and they are afraid. I think that's significant as well, because it reminds us that repentance doesn't mean perfection. The people of Israel here, they're earnest in their repentance, and yet they're still terrified about what will happen to them when the Philistines arrive. Samuel said, if you do all these things, God will deliver you. And then we hear just a few verses later, the Philistines are coming, and they're terrified. So this is good news. This is a gift. That when my repentance isn't perfect, doesn't mean that God rejects that. That's what we see here in verse 7. Verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered them. I love these two verses. Because here we see that Israel finally gets it. After 20 years of suffering, they finally understand. When they're facing their destruction, 
they run to the Lord in prayer. They don't run to false gods. They don't run to the ark and say, well, if we just set the ark up and bring it into battle with us, then God will be forced to deliver us. No, they run to the only place that that can save them, and that is God alone. Israel's actions here, their worship, and they're even more notable when we consider the very clear contrast. Let's go ahead and show uh, that that chart that that we have here, showing the contrast between 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 1 Samuel chapter 7. There's a a number of contrasts and parallels here between 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 4 and 1 Samuel chapter 7. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the people of Israel are in battle with the Philistines. And in chapter 7, they're going to go into battle with the Philistines as well. There's a number of parallels. I want to just focus on the one that we see in verse 8 of chapter 7. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 4, what do they do when they need help? They say, let us grab the ark and the ark will save us. And yet now in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 7, they say, Samuel, don't stop praying, crying out to God that God might save us. They get it. At long last, they get it. They're wholly dependent upon the Lord for their deliverance. Just picture this scene. People of Israel are gathered in worship Philistines are marching, drawing ever nearer to Mizpah. And yet, rather than building fortifications, taking up arms, rather than hiding, rather than running away, they offer a sacrifice and they pray. And just like their offering here is a whole burnt offering to God, they're showing that they are wholly dependent upon the Lord to save them. Verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Here we see that God delivers Israel. Twenty years after the disaster of Aphek, we now have the victory at Mizpah. At Aphek, the the Lord fought against Israel. That's what we see in chapter 4. And now we see that he's fighting on behalf of Israel. In chapter 4, he struck the Israelites. Now he strikes the Philistine army, and he does so with confusion. He thunders from heaven. This is actually the fulfillment of of a part of Hannah's song in chapter 2, verse 10. She says that God will intervene for his people, thundering from heaven. And he comes to the rescue of his people. And the text is, is abundantly clear. It is the Lord and the Lord alone who is delivering Israel here. Israel has gathered for worship. They haven't gathered for war, and yet they rout the Philistines at Mizpah. They absolutely destroy them to the point where the Philistines flee, and they, they chase them. They run after them. Philistines are running back to their homeland. The Israelites are chasing them, driving them out of Israel completely, and the Lord has saved his people. 
Notice what verse 12 says. How the people of Israel respond. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. After the battle, Samuel raises up this large stone. He calls it Ebenezer, which is just Hebrew for stone of help. He says, this is a testament to all of us and to the nations or to the generations that will come after us that God has been faithful, that God has made promises and that God keeps those promises promises. This is actually a common practice in Israel in the Old Testament. You see in the book of Joshua, Israel crosses the Jordan River. They, they cross actually miraculously on dry ground. And Joshua says, hey, go ahead and grab some stones from the center of the riverbed and we're going to set them up as a testament of God's faithfulness to us to remind ourselves that anytime we walk past this spot, we'll remember God did something here. God kept his promises right here. And so the people of Israel would always use Ebenezer's to remind themselves, to strengthen their faith by remembering what God had done in the past so that they would have more faith now in the present. And there's, there's a great deal of value in doing that today as well. I don't, I don't remember exactly when I became a Christian. It, it happened sometime in January of my junior year of high school. There's a lot to this story, but, but I remember uh, vividly sitting at the computer desk in my parents' house, sitting in the chair, and there was just something different. And I don't go back to my parents' house all that often. It's one of the things about kind of being busy on the weekends. But when I do go, it's the same desk. It's even the same chair. And when I'm not chasing kids through my parents' house, sometimes I will sit in that chair. And I will remember that moment from almost 20 years ago of God's faithfulness, his deliverance for me. It happened in early January. Oftentimes in early January, when we get to a new year, that'll come to mind. And I'll remember. And I'll thank God for his faithfulness to someone like me. God wants us to remember what he has done for us in the past to strengthen our faith today. Today, we don't do a great job of remembering God's faithfulness in the past. Old Testaments are filled with psalms and stories of God's people reminding each other of how God has worked on their behalf in the past, of what God has done for them so that they can remain confident that God would continue to do the exact same thing today. What if we took that exact same step? Set a stone up 
write it in a prayer journal. Put it on your calendar, whether it is a physical one or a digital one, to remind yourself regularly of God's faithfulness to you. How has he answered your prayers? How has he shown himself faithful? How how has he shown himself to be a deliverer, a provider? In reality, our lives are filled with Ebenezer's if we're looking for them. Reminders of God's help for us, his faithfulness to us on our behalf. Times when we were weak and God was our strength. When we were trapped in darkness and God gave us light. When God intervened on our behalf. When we were lost in sin and God gave us freedom. I'm convinced this is one of the most neglected spiritual disciplines in the church. The discipline of remembering God's faithfulness. What if we followed the example of Samuel? We kept a journal. We set up a rock to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. It doesn't matter what you do. Just don't neglect this discipline. See, these verses make it very clear to us. This is our second episode here. God's faithfulness to you is worth remembering. God's faithfulness to you is worth remembering. So how are you remembering? The text ends with a summary statement of Israel. Under Samuel's rule for for decades, Let's consider the the final few verses here of chapter 7. Verse 13, So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter again the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the day of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. You see, under Samuel, as the people of Israel return to the Lord, they follow the Lord, the roles are reversed. Now, it's not the Philistines oppressing the Israelites, it's the Israelites boxing in the Philistines. Remember, 1 Samuel, when we look at the Philistines and Israel, the Philistines are kind of like the the thermometer showing how Israel's relationship to the Lord is doing. And when they are far from God, the the Philistines rule over them, and yet when they're faithfully following the Lord, they have peace and victory over the Philistines. And so here we see the Philistines are no longer a threat. And it's not because Israel has suddenly become militarily supreme. But it's because they are following the Lord. And the people of of Israel here under Samuel, they're returning to the Lord. And and Samuel has this circuit that he goes from Bethel to, to Gilgal to Mizpah. This is a part of his leadership. But it's also to remind the people of their call to return and keep on following the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a message of repentance continually. And the last part of this chapter says that he sets up an altar. The people of Israel are worshiping the Lord. I'm going to be very honest with you. The last month or so, as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, 
It's chapter after chapter, sermon after sermon that ends with this note of judgment because all of the ways Israel just is ignoring God, rebelling against God, the end of this chapter is really refreshing because the people of Israel get it, at least until next week. They at long last get it. They, they have the Lord, and they're following Samuel as he's leading them to the Lord. And, and even though there's not a king, we, we see what the king is supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be pointing the people of Israel to the Lord. This is something that hasn't happened since Joshua. At long last, someone is leading them to the Lord. And that's the message of these final few verses, that we need someone to show us the Lord. We need someone to show us the way of obedience to God. Just like the Israelites flourished under the leadership of godly Samuel, you and I, we, we flourish when we are under the, the leadership of godly leaders who point us to our God. And, and there's something there's something to be said here about being a, a part of, of a church with godly church leaders, yes. There's something here about following mentors and, and people who are discipling us and pointing us to Jesus, but that's not the heart of this passage. The heart of this passage is ultimately about our king. If you look at our sermon series title, it says we're looking for the true king. That's what 1 Samuel is all about. It's a reminder that we need the Lord's chosen king. And we consider these verses here at the end about Samuel, and, and he's, he's a great judge, a great leader, and yet he's still imperfect. And he leads the people of Israel in faithfully following the Lord, and, and yet he's not perfect. We'll see that very clearly next week. And he points us to the one who is perfect. This good judge points us to the chosen king. And that chosen king isn't David. It's Jesus. This king who is going to lead us, his people, in full obedience to the living God. It's not David. It's the son of David. King Jesus. Really, that's, that's the heart of this passage. This passage about renewal, this passage about repentance. When we take it as a whole, we, we see this message is simply this, that, that King Jesus leads us in the way of renewal and repentance. King Jesus leads us in the way of renewal and repentance. You want a renewed faith, you want a revitalized faith, then look to Jesus. You want to know how to walk the path of repentance so that you can live in relationship with the living God, then look to Jesus, who even though he did not need to repent, he shows us what obedience looks like. And when we look at Jesus, we see the true and better way of, of renewal and repentance in a way that Samuel, for all of his faithfulness, for all of his obedience, never could do for Israel. King Jesus leads us in the way of renewal and repentance. But here's the thing. Jesus is not just our example. He's also the declaration from heaven that no matter your past, 
no matter how strong your rebellion, no matter how long you have stubbornly gone against God, you've gone your own way, Jesus is the guarantee that there is renewal for anyone who wants it. King Jesus leads us in the way of repentance and renewal because King Jesus is the way of repentance and renewal. What about you? Are you following King Jesus on the hard but beautiful path of repentance and obedience? Are you, are you calling to mind God's faithfulness to you in the past? The faithfulness of King Jesus is never-ending. Here in 1 Samuel, we at long last see our heart's desire, the King who will renew our souls and bring us to the living God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the incredible gift of the gospel. Thank you for King Jesus who leads us in the path of renewal, who enables us to respond to you with repentance. God, we ask that you would help us to live lives regularly of repentance, always pursuing relationship with you. Help us, God. It's in your mercy. We pray these things. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.